welcome to uh, Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today we are talking about depression. I feel like this um, this episode is so relevant to really everyone because I think you know none of us are making it out of this life alive. I think that that's the one thing that we have in common, and you know all of us will get bumps and bruises in the process. Some 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 of those bruises will will sting a little bit more than others. And I think that all of us are really just on this like continuous healing journey. You know, in, in an interview that I did last night, I was talking about that, how I think that all of us, I think, are like in progress in terms of, you know, trying to heal. Um, and, you know, some things, some illnesses just manifest themselves. Some, some things require more healing than others. And that's why I like to focus so many of my podcasts on mental health. Um, I have Dr. Subna Doshi back in the studio with us today. I'm, I'm so happy that she is here. Um, her presence on the show is always, always very insightful and wonderful. Um, she is a director and clinical psychologist at Mind, Body, and Health, a therapy practice, or is it Mind, Body, Health? It's Mind, Body, Health, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a psychologist at Mind, Body, Health, a therapy practice with locations in Arlington, Virginia, and Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. She earned her Ph.D. from Drexel University and completed her doctoral internship at Duke University Medical Center. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. Yes. Um, So just a few interesting facts about depression from the World Health Organization that I didn't even know all of these things. Um, Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. Um, More women are affected by depression than men, which we will actually be talking about. I found that to be very interesting. Um, Although there are known effective treatments for mental disorders, between 76 and 85% of people in low- and middle-income countries receive no treatment for their disorder. Um, And the burden of depression and other mental health conditions is on the rise globally, which is, I mean, not surprising. I think as we become Mm -hmm. more glued to our phones and disconnected, I think that, yeah. Um, A World Health Assembly resolution passed in May 2013 has called for a comprehensive, coordinated response to mental health disorders at the country level. Um, So that, you know, is really interesting statistics from the World Health Organization. Um, So what happens in the brain when a person is depressed? Yeah, so a lot of times what people will think about is a chemical imbalance, which is true. Oftentimes there's an imbalance around um, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. These are the neurotransmitters that tend to make us feel really good. Um, But what we're also learning too is that there are structures in the brain that are also changing in people that are depressed compared to people that are not. And those are those parts of the brains the, uh, that people are um, struggling with in, with depression has to do with uh, emotion regulation, memory, thinking, planning. So these are the things that people who are depressed often struggle with. And what's happening in those brain structures is that there isn't growth of new brain cells and um, neurons aren't necessarily making connections. So sometimes when we put folks on antidepressants, we'll get the chemicals balanced out and the brain um, cells will start generating again and new neurons will make better connections and people will start feeling better. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think sometimes like people, like being depressed can feel like you're in like a pot of boiling water. Um, like that, you know, the frog um, analogy that people use like to use, like, you, you know, can't, you can't jump out until it's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sometimes when you're, when you're feeling depressed, you don't necessarily always realize that you are, you just, because it could have, you could have been in that state for years, for months, for weeks, and you may get used to that condition, but sometimes it's just sadness. So how do you know if you're depressed or if you're sad? Yeah. So, and is there a huge difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, one of the symptoms that we see in depression is sadness and we see people feeling down, depressed and sad. So that's a feature of it, but with depression, there's so many other things to consider. So one of the things that we're looking for is um, when someone's feeling down, depressed, or sad, 
or if they've lost interest in things that they usually enjoy doing, we're looking to see if that's their experience nearly every day for about two weeks or longer. So that's uh, one of the things that we're looking at in conjunction with other features that we often see with people that are depressed. So that includes appetite changes, difficulty with sleep, fatigue, moving a little bit slower than usual, or having um, a lot of agitation and feeling restless, a lot of difficulty concentrating, um, feelings of feeling like worthless, feeling guilty, and often having suicidal thoughts as well. Um, so those are some things. So it'll be a combination of a bunch of those different symptoms. And then one of the other things that we really focus on is how this is impacting someone's functioning. So a lot of times you can be sad, but you can stay on top of things. You can go through life and figure out your responsibilities, show up for work. But people who are depressed, we're seeing that it's really impacting their, their functioning. So their day-to-day -day responsibilities, they're falling behind on things like that. Um, it's impacting their relationships. They're not showing up for people in their life. They're not connecting with people. And oftentimes, um, it's, it's impacting their work. So they're not able to think as clearly. They're not performing as well. They may not even show up to work some days because it's that hard to get out of bed. Yeah. What if you're like um, a functioning depressed person? Like, because I think that we think of like people like Anthony Bourdain and, yeah. you know, I don't know the, in, the innards of his, his life and stuff, but you see him on television and people think, oh, like a lively personality. Because I think that oftentimes people can present well to the world yeah. and you don't know that like they're depressed. Mm -hmm. Like how, how does, I don't even know how that, I mean, well, I do know how that works, mm -hmm. but how do you help someone or how, how does that even work? Like why do, how can some people present so well, but then just go home and just be really in a dark space? Yeah. And that's, it's sometimes even worse. Like they're suffering so much more because they're going into the world being really inauthentic and there's such a, such a jarring experience and that can feel so isolating. Yeah. Um, compared to how they're feeling inside, they have to put on this happy face for other people. It's probably exhausting. Makes them you're tired Absolutely. already, and then you're even more exhausted from having to like yeah. fake the funk. Exactly, and it's very isolating when you're not letting people know exactly how you're feeling, and so it can feel like a huge burden that you're just trying to struggle with and trying to find your way out of. Um, and, and you, you can often feel really isolated in that. Yeah. Cause I mean, I just remember like when the news of Anthony Bourdain mm -hmm. broke, um, people just talking about like, Oh, you know, because obviously he's a, television personality like we don't know what's going on exactly. it's like oh you always seem so this or that and and I think that you know sometimes when people commit suicide it's like that is often the description but it's like I think that there's a lot of shame attached to depression mm -hmm. um and so I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like the destigmatization destigmatization yeah de <laughs> I, I, can't, I cannot talk today <laughs> we're removing we, the stigma we guys yeah. <laughs> removing the stigma I literally cannot talk is important and yeah. you know and and I think even us having like this podcast is important yeah. to talk about like how so many people suffer from depression and that it doesn't discriminate. Like that's right. Even wanting to like my friend called me the other day and he was like, to hear, are you trying to be famous with this podcast? Like what's <laughs> going on? And I was like, I never want to be famous. Yeah. Like look at if you, yeah. you know, do like a, a study on like famous people, they suffer from mm -hmm. a lot of like substance abuse yes. issues and like fame is not a pathway to happiness at all. No. I was like, I want to make an impact. And if in that I become known, yeah. then so be it. But right. yeah, it's hard. And, and one of the things we don't realize is, you know, a lot of people will say, well, these people had uh, access to all kinds of things. They're living this amazing life. Um, and it's kind of like the social media phenomenon. Like you're seeing the highlights of people's yes. lives. Um, but one thing about depression we have to understand, like you said, it does not discriminate. You know, so many people across the, the world suffer from this. And we have research backing it up that it it does, like, have to do with the brain. It's not yeah. just, like, you know, you're moping around and you're feeling, like, sad for yourself. 
there's physiological things going on, and um, but it's not in in yeah. your control. Exactly. Yeah. It exactly. like the whole pull up your bootstraps and yes is like bullshit. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. We need to put it to rest. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, yeah. I think like the discussion about like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and all this stuff surrounding them and. I, re- I got really pissed because someone was like, really, they have all this access and they're going to complain about. And it's like, well, I mean, all things don't necessarily cor- directly correlate to happiness. And they did what was best for them. Like, clearly there was some suffering going on. And so I think that it's good to remember that the achievement of things is not uh, yeah. a roadmap. To, right. to happiness and to a not mm. depressed state. Yeah, and one of the triggers for developing, you know, more severe depression is having a lot of stressful life events. And so these folks are under a lot of pressure and they're going through stressful things, having so many eyes on them and having such high expectations of some of these people. The pressure just gets to, to be too much sometimes, which can trigger depression. Yeah, like... I, you know, get upset if I hear one person talking poorly about me, but if you get like a thousand articles that are talking about your baby bump and the color of your skin and this and that, and you know, it's like, yeah, I can't imagine. But, um, so why are so many more women than men affected by depression? Is it that just because more women are willing to admit they're depressed and so they essentially are becoming a statistic or why is that? That's a great question. I I think that that's probably a small piece of it, but the research shows that that doesn't truly explain uh, the significant differences between why women have um, more depression than men. And so in all things related to psychology, the answer is always pretty complicated and there's many different variables at play. So I like to use the biopsychosocial model in which there's usually biological factors, psychological factors, and social environmental factors that are at play. And so when we think about women and biological factors, there really isn't a difference between um, men and women in terms of genetics. Uh, But what we do see is around the age of like 12 or 13, Um, we'll see that that difference emerges between females and males in terms of depression frequency. Uh, And so, and that lasts then throughout uh, uh, the lifespan. And it's around that age that females are going through puberty. And so, so in terms of that, you know, the body is changing a lot and that's where we can start bringing in the psychological and social environmental aspects of it women are um, significantly more likely to face sexual abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault, much more than men. And these are uh, significant risk factors for developing uh, And huge life event things. Absolutely. That can be triggers Mm -hmm. probably, yeah. And when you go through something like that, your, your ability to handle stressors moving forward becomes harder. There are changes that happen in the brain. It just makes it harder for you to, to cope with stress when those things happen. The other really interesting thing that we're finding is that um, it's around that age, too, that girls start looking at their bodies differently and criticizing them and having shame. That and they also being criticized. And being criticized. Yes. That happens as well. And even with peers, and there can be a lot of comparison. And um, and so what we're seeing is that they, they can develop this shame around their bodies. And as they're doing that, that can really lead to, uh, what we're seeing is can lead to more significant um, depressive symptoms, you know, as they get older. Mm -hmm. So those are some kind of uh, social environmental factors. And lastly, one of the things when we think about psychological factors is the way women cope. And one of the ways women tend to cope is to ruminate a lot about things. This is so true of myself. (laughs) Yeah. And you you think about the conversations that you have with your girlfriends. I know. It's like we replay all of the bad shit. And you have to think like like a conversation with your girlfriend. Girl, you won't believe what happened to me. So-and-so said 
this to me, so-and-so. And we're recounting really kind of terrible stuff that happened yes. throughout the day. And like we keep going over yeah. it and keep talking to more girlfriends about yes. it. And so we... Like, you won't believe what yeah, happened. Exactly. Yeah. And so that really interferes with the ability to like take action and problem solve. And, um, and rumination has been a predictor of developing uh, depressive symptoms. So... So it's a complex answer to your question, but there's a lot yeah. of different things at play there. Yeah. Um, so do you think too, like, you know, I think before we had discussed, um, or in one of your responses, you were talking about how men are like, they want a resolution to problems too. Like it's, and, and I think for anyone that's been in a relationship with a man, they know that this is true is like you give them a problem and they want to solve it. They, they're not interested in like necessarily like talking about the problem and ruminating over it. It's like, okay, I'm yeah. going to help you come up with a solution. <laughs> so do, yeah. do you think that that's also a reason that like yeah. men ruminate less? Yes, uh, they do tend to go straight into problem solving mode. And so I think women and men just have to find more of a balance there where yes. men are like taking a little bit more time to like think through some things and women are spending a little less time going over things in their yeah. mind so much. Yeah. And we're more verbal. I like yes. read a study that like we talk like we say 300 times, something ridiculous. Yeah. I don't want to give more out a, yes, <laughs> uh, an incorrect stat, but we say a lot more words per day than men on average. So, true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so why do you think that depression is on the rise globally? Like I have my own suspicions about this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when we talked about um, this at the beginning of the podcast, like there's such a disconnection. I think like personally, I feel like there's a breakdown in family structures. We're living farther away from, you know, our nucleus, our family nucleus. Um, and so we're isolated, you know, social media, which, you know, you get caught up on social media. It's bullshit. Um, and we see the highlight re reels. And so we're in this like compare culture and I think, you know, um, you had mentioned too, like getting out less and, and whatnot, but I also feel like there's a, a spiritual component too that, I mean, personally, I feel like there's a, uh, like a spiritual component that we're getting like out of touch with like ourselves and nature and just, I don't know, but can you talk more about that? like the scientific research? Cause those yeah. are just some of my, yeah. my, my ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're, you're right on and on many of those points. Um, so the, the, the research has kind of linked modernization of societies to greater rates of depression. And one of the things that we're noticing with modernization happening across the world is that people are, our diets are more processed, we are more sedentary, we're not getting outside, not getting as much sunlight. Um, we are definitely more isolated and stressed in modernized societies, um, and we do feel more isolated. And uh, we're also just not sleeping as well, we're not resting as well. Um, and so like going to, to your point about spirituality, I haven't looked at the research on that, but it makes sense. There's just like less room to take care of yourself and connect with yourself essentially. Um, and we're also, de yeah, definitely getting more competitive. Um, and there's also this compare culture that's going on as well. So all of these things are really impacting people globally. And I think you, you alluded to this earlier, um, with the statistics in the beginning, you know, medication may be available um, in many parts of the world, which is helping probably, but uh, the research shows that the combination of medication and therapy is like the, the best outcomes long-term, and there might just not be access or stigma to, around seeking therapy. Um, but to your point too, there's actually research showing that collectivistic um, communities versus individualistic communities um, suffer less from depression. So collectivistic meaning like focusing on the family unit, unit and small communities versus focusing on the self so much. And um, yeah, and then actually like certain environments, industrial, urban environments have greater rates of depression versus more like farming communities too. Mm -hmm. So 
there's a lot of different things at play, but yeah, you're right on about a lot of those things. Yeah. I also think that capitalism lends itself to depression. That's just my personal opinion, because when you put money and profits at the top of everything, people come second. And so I think that People and emotions absolutely come second. And it's an accepted way of our society that, you know, capitalism is, it's like, okay, well, no, profits. And so you you cut people at the expense of people. Um, and so when, when your goal in money is to make, or when your goal in life is to make, say, the most amount of money at the expense of everything else, it's like, well, what did you expect? Did you think that you would be happy? Right. Yeah, and they've actually done studies, too, to show that, like, economies that are thriving have significantly higher rates of depression. Which yeah. Is, yeah. I Like, I mean, I don't want to be poor. I want, I think, but I think that there's been studies shown that, like, once you make a certain amount of income, like, your happiness levels don't really change. Right. Um, like, numbers never end and so I think if you're chasing numbers you'll never be happy exactly. um and so I think that I don't know not to get preachy but I, I do think it's like you have to seek that internal yes internal happiness because extrinsic things are are fast and fleeting that's right <laughs> um so there are some people listening that have met have have probably never experienced depression before and aren't able to relate to it which is quite amazing to me and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm jealous of those uh-huh. people. Um, however, chances are that someone in your life suffers from it. I certainly know what it feels like to be depressed and not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and it's a dark place. It is a very, very dark place. And um, I think it can be really difficult to get out of. But can you summarize to someone who hasn't been there or even someone that has been there so they can say, okay, I can see myself in that? Like, what do people feel like when they are in like a deep depression? Because I think that most of us have felt some sort of sadness, but what does that really like? What does that darkness yeah. feel like? Yeah, one of the things that um, is present in almost every client of mine that I work with with depression is this idea that everything feels like huge effort, right? So yeah. getting out of bed. Like weights and, on your arms. Yes. Like and the blinds are drawn. Mm-hmm, like exactly. there's no light in the world. Yes. Yeah. And you just feel very heavy moving through your life. And um, and the thing is, because of what's going on in the brain, you're, you're feeling like you're pushing yourself to do the basics and you're not even getting any pleasure out of it. Like, yeah. Basically, when you're in a, in, in a, de- a state of depression, you're really not feeling like anything's bringing you joy or happiness. And so a lot of people will kind of get to the point of saying, like, what's the point? You know, and they'll kind of start dropping out of life in different ways. They'll stop seeing their friends and their family. They'll stay at home a lot. And they'll start avoiding the world, which just ends up making depression a lot worse. Um, but yeah, the, I, like what we talked about earlier, there's a lot of sleep issues, a lot of fatigue, appetite changes, um, difficulty concentrating, really awful thoughts about like worthlessness and not feeling good enough, and um, sometimes thoughts about death and suicide. So mm-hmm. it's a scary, dark place. Yeah. So what do you do with your with clients or anyone? What would your recommendation be? Because I think that sometimes when you're depressed, it's like a hamster wheel and you're having those like ruminating thoughts yeah. and it's like a feedback loop of you, like the bullshit things that are happening in your brain. Like yes. I know that when I've gone through traumatic things and I'm trying to recover, like I will absolutely force myself out of bed to like go to the gym yeah. or go sit in the sauna or do something that like, if I wasn't depressed would bring me a, a good amount of joy. Yeah. Um, just to try to like break that like feedback loop. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, is like, are, is that some mm-hmm. of the things that you recommend for people? Yeah. So behavioral activation is a treatment that I use a lot that's shown to have a lot of support in the research as well. And essentially what that boils down to is getting people to force themselves out of getting out of their mind yeah. and like starting to live life like they did in the past and when they were feeling more joy and engaging in life can actually start bringing you like some good feelings again. So, yeah. And connectivity. Yeah. 
connectivity is huge. Yeah. Um, social interaction is really important for us as human beings. Um, and it's so quick and easy now to yeah. hide from that. By Online just, dating and social media. Yes. And, and so you feel it's almost like you get these, mm-hmm. you you know, but I, I've read studies that you don't get the same like endorphins when you're on the phone versus when you actually see someone's face and they're yeah. in front of you, like the, the endorphins and the, Sorry. I think the dopamine hits yeah. are like, are different. Yeah. Yeah. And there, you know, like so many things on the phone, it's been like gamified almost. And so like when you swipe and when you do things on your phone and you get a heart or a like or whatever, it does light up some parts of the brain. But so, so it's starting to feel like it's a substitute, but there is no substitute from sitting across from somebody and having a, a conversation with them face to face. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you think of like trying to have like a long distance relationship, it's yeah. <laughs> obviously you want to see that person in person. Yes. Right. <laughs> and not just be You're over not, the phone yeah. all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like you get the excitement from like them being present. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you provide support to someone who's going through like a dark space? Because I think there, like I said, there's so much shame mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you don't want to know about it. Like you don't want other people to know about it. I know that like for myself, like I call, like I call my sister, mm-hmm. like I know that like, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to call my sister or I have like my friend Gina that I'll call and like she's able to support me. So I have like my go-to people mm-hmm. who are able to understand and kind of like help me break that that like treadmill totally. <laughs> like hamster wheel cycle of like, no, this is a false reality. Mm-hmm. This is not really what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> the world is not against yes. you. Yeah. The blinds are open. The sun is out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It can, so... So the first thing I'd recommend is, so for someone who you're asking, like, how, how do you help someone? Yeah. How do you support someone? Yeah. How do you support someone? So, you know, I think really starting with validation. So letting them know, like, maybe you don't know what it's like, but you imagine that this is really hard for them and that, um, you know, that there is stuff going on inside of their brain and their body that's making it hard for you to live. And that must be really hard. And just letting them know that you're here to help. Um, and what I love for loved ones to do is like have the patient or the client be held accountable to like make plans and keep them. So if you find that somewhere your friend has like disappeared um, and isn't like contacting you anymore, reach out to them and say, hey, it's been too long. We need to catch up. And then hopefully you'll get them started on talking about what's going on with them. And then you can offer other things. So like, you know, nutrition and getting outside and interacting with others is so important. You can help them uh, cook healthy meals. You can go for walks with them. Um, and a lot of times they're avoidant and like you said, there might be shame. So they may not want to go to therapy or if they've never been to therapy or they don't want to talk to a doctor or they're scared of medication. So just helping like make those initial appointments for them or with them. Yeah. And one thing that I know in a previous episode we talked about is things not to do, (laughs) which I think are almost as important as what to do. Oh yeah. And one of the things that you had said was like, don't ever tell someone it could be worse yes. or at least you're not like starving child in right. whatever, like, you know, oh, third gosh. world country. Like I love my mother, but sometimes this is her tactic because she wants me yeah. to know that like you could, it could be worse to hear like your life is great, but it's like, that doesn't mean that wherever you're at is where you are. And it doesn't mean that your problems don't matter. Yes. So I think that sometimes it's nice to like, be snapped out of it. Like, okay, like I'm, I'm thankful for this, yeah. but also like it, it doesn't really make depressed people feel better when you no. tell them that like, well, at least you're not dying of cancer. It's like, okay, fuck no. off. Right. Like, well, cause people who are depressed are already feeling really guilty about a lot of things. And so then saying something like that, is just going to make them feel worse and more guilty. So definitely not the route that you want to go. Yeah. Um, so we talked about some of the chemical imbalances a little bit in the beginning. Is there a difference between a person who suffers from a lifelong depression, so like like a depressive disorder, um, versus someone that maybe 
triggered by a particular event? Like is, Mm -hmm. are the chemical imbalances different? Like you had mentioned like the structure of the brain. Um, cause sometimes people can be generally happy people and then thrown into a depression by a death or something. And then you have people that, you know, have chronic disorders. So where is the difference in the brain chemistry there? Yeah. Or is there? Yeah. So I think, so people who have, um, family histories of people, uh, who have mood disorders or depressive disorder, uh, are more likely to have more significant, um, longer term, more episodes of depression. Um, when someone has like a death in the family or a death of a loved one and then get pulled into a depressive episode, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a chemical imbalance. Um, not every single person with depression is going to need medication to get control of that imbalance. Um, but there are people genetically more susceptible to those imbalances because there's a family history of it. Yeah. Um, I often feel like addiction is triggered by a mental health condition, um, like depression or anxiety and substance abuse, um, can be a means of like Mm self-medicating. Um, I thought it was interesting that like in the eighties, interesting and very, very sad that like in the eighties and Mm nineties, there was a crack epidemic that really affected the minority community. It was criminalized instead of like people, you know, our community coming together and taking care of those people. And now you see that it's impacted, um, like with like the pills and Mm -hmm. Oxycontin and all these like drugs and stuff. Um, the pharmaceutical companies dumping, you know, stuff in flooding the markets and it's affecting like more of like the white population and they're treating it differently. Mm. So, and I, and I think that, it is like how society has viewed these two epidemics um, is indicative of like how like different cultures like mm-hmm. are treated differently in mm-hmm. terms of this mm-hmm. and like seeking treatment, you know, yeah. and the stigmas around that. Do you see different cultural differences in the way that people seek treatment that may be impacted by like their treatment in the past? Like I know that, um, you know, for some, some of my friends who are black, they're like, well, you know, it's encouraged that we go to church and that there may not be, um, as much encouragement, you know, maybe from their parents Mm -hmm. to seek like therapy because that has not traditionally been a place. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot more push in minority communities for that. Like, can you, can you talk on that at all? Is like the cultural differences? Yeah. And, and I don't know, like all the research on this, and I'm sure it's com- complex again, like everything in psychology is. But what I do know is that in a lot of collectivistic kind of uh, communities or cultures, again, that where the focus is on family, like the idea here is to turn to the family in times yeah. of stress. And when you're living in more individualistic um, societies or communities where it's more like fend for yourself, there can be more of this like, okay, external um, desire to cope would be my guess. And that's where substances might come into play. I think substances come into play often with depression. Yeah. Um, but yeah, based on the culture and the community, there probably are differences in, yeah. in how they how people seek out treatment. Sorry, it's a long and twisted, unexpected question. Yeah, that's just right. Like, it's it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. no, because I think that yeah. the way that like different communities mm-hmm. and different within like races, like different classes, mm-hmm. like, you know, at the beginning there was a statistic about it affecting lower, you know, yes. lower income people more. And so it's just interesting the ramifications, yeah. like the access and all of that presents when it comes to mental health. Yeah. Um, Yes. So, um, how, well, and just to add to that, there, there are definitely in, in the mental health world, there have been, um, communities that have had mistrust in, in the mental health field because they were treated yeah. differently. And yeah. there, there is a history around that. So, yeah. Um, and, and rightly yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that does play a part. Yeah. Apprehension and like wanting to seek care. 
Yeah. Um, so how does alcohol consumption impact depression? Because it's like, you'll hear so many times, oh, I had a stressful day. I need a glass of wine, but alcohol is a depressant. Yes. So, <laughs> so right. you kind of like check if you have too much of it the next day. So yes. if you are in like a space where you feel like you may be at the tipping point or are already depressed, yeah. I mean, alcohol may a good thing to avoid, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's so much comorbidity there where I think it's um, about a third of people who are suffering from depression are uh, also have issues with alcohol and vice versa. People who have alcohol issues um, then can, are more likely to develop major depressive disorders. And so there is an appeal because in the short term, it does help you escape kind of the um, incessant thoughts that you're having all day long about, you know, all, all the negative things that are running through your mind. Um, and it just can make you feel different for yeah, a little bit. Like relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. But we know that if you have, like for anyone who's had a one too many drinks and then the next morning you're hungover, you're actually getting a slight glimpse into what it's like to feel depressed. Like your sleep is a mess. Your appetite might change. You can't think properly or straight. And like you're just tired and run down. And so you have all of that when you're hungover and then you're adding that to all the depression symptoms. It just makes things 10 times worse. Yeah. And actually alcohol will um, reduce the level of serotonin, norepinephrine in the brain. And those are the feel good hormones. So oh, yeah, it's not that, great. <laughs> that is good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so don't get drunk tonight if you're not feeling... No. Please too don't. great about yourself. Yeah. Don't get drunk tonight anyway, but you know. Right. <laughs> um, so I truly am of the belief that you cannot treat the mind without treating the body too. And I mean, the place that, that you work <laughs> at, that you're the director of, is called Mind Body right. Health. So I feel like you you probably feel the same thing. And I think it's the same with the body. You can't treat it without treating the mind first. I think everything is, is always hand in hand. Um, there are so many factors that influence mental health, including diet, stress, life events, yeah. etc. You know, in the Western world specifically, it seems like we treat ailments, but only target the symptom. Like yeah. it drives me crazy when mm -hmm. my like general doctor will prescribe antidepressants that pisses me off to no end because I'm like, do you know, like, and they're like flipping through their medical journal telling you about the side effects or they don't know yeah. the side effects. And it's like, should yeah. you really be just, I'm telling you I'm sad. And this is like the next step. Like, yeah. It, yeah. It's often not a dialogue. And a lot of times, at least from what I'll hear from clients is that the immediate answers, like here's your prescription versus kind of assessing a little bit more, asking if they have resources to go to therapy to, as a next step or, um, you know, how, what, what's going on in their life, how are they living? What kind of things are they eating and are they exercising? Yeah. Because like sugar and, you know, you mentioned alcohol and food, there's food intake that can make you feel horrible. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if you do have depression, I think like cleaning up your diet and like removing additives and all of that stuff. Can you speak yeah. to any of that? Like how diet can impact mood? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're depressed, there can be a desire to reach for um, highly re refined carbs because what it does is it gives us a quick boost of energy in the brain and releases serotonin. But um, those types of carbs can bring us crashing down very quickly and feel pretty awful. So it's not to say we need to eliminate those things um, completely from our diet, but having a balanced diet is so key because you think about whole grains, um, fruits and vegetables, they really are used by the brain to provide energy to um, release neurotransmitters. Protein uh, has amino acids, which are the building blocks for these neurotransmitters. Like healthy fats like avocados, um, certain types of oils, fish, omega-3 fatty acids can actually have an antidepressant effect on the brain too. Um, so, so, and when you're having a highly processed diet, Again, like we don't have to eliminate all the, the fun yeah. foods out there, but yeah, it's balanced. Everything yeah, it's is balanced. Just balanced, but you can have a lot of nutrition deficiencies that will make you feel 
more tired and sluggish and all these things that you know contribute to depression as well or yeah make it those things worse in depression yeah um I aggressively take care of my mental health because I know that you know because of trauma and biological factors mm-hmm. it runs in my family and other stressors I'm at risk so I work out a lot I go to orange theory all right. I <laughs> and, love and orange theory. yes me it's too fun. but the hit workouts mm-hmm. I notice that like the hit workouts they impact me differently than say like a bar class. And I love bar, but I don't know if it's like, because I'm getting at my heart rate, I'm sweating. I don't know what the, like the reasoning is for that, but the happy feeling that I feel after I go to orange theory is unmatched. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know the, the research specifically on types of exercise and what that does to the brain and for people that are struggling with depression, but we do know that exercise is definitely related to releasing those feel-good hormones in the body. Um, and it's not going to be a cure for depression, yeah. but it's definitely going to... Actually, they've done research to show that compared to no treatment, it actually helps reduce a lot of depressive symptoms. So. Yeah. I also do acupuncture and cupping. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> like good. I I have found that for me acupuncture doesn't in its by itself it doesn't really help me a lot, right. but in conjunction with cupping it yeah. has helped. And I also have like shoulder pain and so wow. um from a surgery so it's like it helps with that. They do yeah. some energy work. That's like great. I do I do all That's the things. Great. I do Reiki. <laughs> I get massages. One th- I I have a I actually have a health savings account so I can get massages once yeah. a month like I'm very proactive about making sure that I put awesome. aside money mm-hmm. and uh, every month to do like all of these self-care things and my insurance pays for yeah. the acupuncture and cupping so that's helpful but I think that like I try to make sure that I get ahead of it and I think it's that so like important. for people that know that they have mm-hmm. like a proclivity for depression it's so important to like get ahead of it and yeah. sleep. Like I know yeah. like people make fun of me, but I'm like, I make sure that I go to bed at like a certain time, yeah. you know, yeah. every day. And I'm like, I have to get eight hours else. I just can't function. But I think that people underestimate how important sleep is. Yeah, absolutely. Sleep is, I mean, that's when your body is going in and repairing so many things. Cells, your cells are repairing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's helping the brain organize information. Yeah. And um, transfer. It doesn't, mm-hmm. when you sleep, I think, I think in a previous interview, you were talking about how it like helps you transfer like memories and process like information. Yeah, and so, exactly. And so sleep is, is vital. I mean, it helps the immune system. Um, it, helps with prevention in terms of getting sick or or repairing the body when you are sick or you have an injury. I mean, all these things. And there's high rates of comorbidity with uh, depression and physical illness too. So if you're not sleeping, your body is more prone to um, contracting illnesses or or falling apart basically. And so you want to make sure you're getting sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And being sick can, I feel like kind of alter your mental health as well because like if you're feeling like shit all the time you're not going to be happy about it exactly um so in 2019 I this is like I'm fascinated about this I want to do an entire (laughs) podcast on this so in 2019 John Johns Hopkins Medicine um announced the launch of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research to study compounds like LSD and psilocybin for a range of mental health problems, including anorexia, addiction, and depression. The center has done trials with participants all under observation of a therapist. And a lot of participants have noted really amazing outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually know people who have done this under the care of a physician and they had amazing outcomes. Of course, where they did it was legal and, you know, and they did it, they prepped with a therapist before and a doctor and all of that. So they really did it in like the right conditions. What do you think about this treatment option and how does it work on the brain? Because I'm, I'm fascinated (laughs) with it. It's really interesting. isn't it? It's, it's, um, you know, actually they started doing research around this in the sixties and it was halted just because it it became illegal to use the substances. And people were using it loosely too. I think like, I, I think doctors are probably p- better able to like prescribe the correct dosage, right? <laughs> right? Well, and so now, even now, funding is, is hard to do the research on this, but 
Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. There, there. You mentioned anorexia, and that's something that we see a lot of in our at our practice and in adults with anorexia. It can be pretty treatment resistant. You know, chronic depression that's very severe can be treatment resistant. So I'm all about you know finding new innovative ways to help these people. So I think it's great. I think there's still a very long road ahead in terms of what we need to learn about it. I think there's more questions than answers at this point. Yeah. Um, but from the few studies that have been done, we've we've seen some positive things. So a lot of people describe and what happens in the brain and what patients are kind of experiencing is it's been described as almost like a higher level of consciousness where you're like breaking through all the very deeply ingrained ways of thinking that hold you back a little bit and yeah. the brain is able to kind of clear out and start generating new pathways. Yes. That um, is how it's been described to me yeah. when I've seen interviews and then also when I've talked to people yeah. about their experiences. Yeah. It's pretty neat. And sometimes that's just like with one session or, you know, it doesn't always have to take a lot to start experiencing that. But yeah, again, highlighting the importance of like as people are doing this, they're in very safe environments, being yeah. monitored by doctors. Yes, and- we're not encouraging this. We're <laughs> just right. merely discussing it. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's pretty interesting, and I'll be curious to see what comes of that yeah. ongoing research. Yeah, I heard that people do microdosing too mm-hmm. to help with like depression and anxiety, like more some of the more chronic conditions. Yeah, I think there's still a lot to learn about, like what dose, how often, for what. Uh, clinical presentation is optimal. I think age is a really important factor for young folks. The brain's still developing, and for older folks, um, there's maybe cognitive decline. So you don't really want to mess too much with uh, the the brain in those ages. So there's there's a lot to sort out still. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know. <laughs> I always laugh about this. I always tell people this because I think it's funny. Um, I think everyone should have a therapist. That's not what I think is funny, but I do think everyone should have a therapist. Me too. I mean, naturally, as a therapist, every, you know, yes. um, not even self-serving to you. I, I truly believe that you think that. But um, I just think that, you know, we all go through things like maybe you don't need to go all the time, but I think that it's good to have that support system Mm -hmm. um, to talk through things because your friends and your family aren't always going to provide the best advice. And also they're not your therapist, so you can't always dump your shit on them. (laughs) Um, But my therapist told me, of course, you know, supportively that I am not unique in my experience of, you know, being depressed or whatever I was going through at the time that she told me this. And I think that the hardest part about depression or any mental illness is that you feel so alone. And I think it's so isolating. Why is this? Why do people feel so alone? And how do you like break out of that? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's a little bit of what we talked about earlier. Actually, there's some research showing that there's genetic links between loneliness and depression too. Yeah. but also it's just so it can be so isolating because a lot of times as you're going through it, like you had a therapist to tell you this is not unique, but a lot of people feel like, oh my gosh, like something's wrong with me and yes. no one gets it. Yeah. Or no like one you will feel, get it. You feel, I think there's so much shame. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. I, if there's one thing that, because I know that like, like these mental health conditions may always exist. I mean, if you look back in the 1400s and you know, you write people feeling melancholy and you know, mental health of like great artists and you know, everything like that. And so I think that it's always been prevalent, but the shame attached to it that prevents people from seeking treatment, from talking about it. And I think that that just adds a layer of complication. So if we could, like, I think when I like that, when she told me that, because it made me laugh and I was like, you know what, you're fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not alone. You're not, exactly. Because you you think that you're the only one of your friends and yeah, Yeah. no one understands my pain. It's like, no chick. Yeah. (laughs) They understand. And it's just, um, it's so common, but I don't think we talk about it yeah. enough because there is a lot of shame wrapped up in it. And yeah. so I think like this podcast, doing things like yeah. that, you're spreading the word, you're letting people know. Yeah. Pain yeah. and sorrow is a universally shared yeah. human condition. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, just talking about it and hopefully, you know, someone listening will be like, yeah, I can relate to that. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so 
Because I am so much an advocate of the integration of mind and body and mm-hmm. spirit, like I, you know, mm-hmm. I, like I said, I don't think you can treat one without doing, you know, doing the other. So if there was, you know, a patient in front of you mm-hmm. <laughs> right now uh-huh. Uh-huh. and they were like, give me five things that I can do, like yeah. mind, body and spirit. Yeah. What, what, or, you know, whatever list, okay. what would, what would you give a person yeah, so actually one of the very first things I'll do is I'll tell someone, um, I'll ask them, when's the last time you went to see a doctor and got a physical, um, got blood work done? Yes, because vitamin deficiencies can yes. alter mental health, guys. Yes, big time. And also there are certain um, medical issues that can mimic symptoms of depression. So iron deficiency, hypothyroidism, vitamin D deficiencies. So yeah, there's... Uh, and it can make those conditions uh, or depression a lot worse. So my first line of treatment is always go, let's get everything checked out yeah. medically. and Like a holistic that. view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're not just throwing a pill at you. Exactly. Yes. And then my, and then I go to like the basics. I talk about like sleep, eating three meals a day and exercising and just meeting the client where they're at and just saying like, what's going on right now and where let, let's make some small changes yeah. to get you going in that direction. Um, in terms of the mind, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of meditation. It's been shown to really help with that rumination that we talked about earlier. And so a big part of our work is to help clients become more observers of their thoughts instead of being totally wrapped up in them and letting the thoughts run the show. So that's another big one that we start with as well. Um, and then I talk a lot to clients about social support and how much they're interacting with others. So if they're totally isolated, a main thing we're doing is talking about how are we getting you to connect with others. Um, and then we're, I'm just overall looking at stress management, like yeah. what's going on in your I life. know people, Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, when people are like, oh my God, my, oh, I'm, I'm depressed, this, that, and the other. And you're like, okay, well, you work like 27 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably contributing yeah. in yes. some ways. <laughs> like stress matters. I mean, yeah. it ages you. Look at every single president. Stress really matters. They age, yeah. you know, a lot. a lot by the time they get out of office. If that's not, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, man, I, we've talked about so much. I feel like we, we could, we could talk another hour about we could. this. There's so much yeah. when it comes to depression. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully listeners, um, were able to, you know, pull something out of this and, you know, at least if they are in kind of like a state of depression, at least kind of explore and know that they're not alone in this. They're not alone, and there are good treatments out there. The combination of medication and therapy is so helpful, and so you don't have to feel like you're alone in that and that it's hopeless. Yeah, and if you need to take a break from work, take a break from work. Yes. Like, take, take care of yourself because... You know, if you're not here, then you can't take care of yourself. That's right. (laughs) So anyway, well, that concludes another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Um, Tell us where they can find you. Yeah, so um, the easiest way to find us is go to our website, mindbodyv, as in Victor, A as in apple.com, mindbodyva.com, or send us an email, info at mindbodyva.com. Okay. Thank you so much. And you can find me at tallhungrygirl.com and you can find my podcasts at Apple Podcasts um, and Spotify under Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Thank you. Bye.